Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Ring of Fire, The Young Turks, On the Media, and The Colbert Report. Joining us now is Brooke Allen, an author and essayist who writes frequently for the New York Times Book Review, The Atlantic Monthly, and The Nation. She's with us today to talk about her new book, Moral Minority, Our Skeptical Founding Fathers. Brooke, thanks so much for joining us on Ring of Fire. Oh, it's great to be on. You wrote this in reaction to this kind of disturbing assertion of the Christian right and essentially the Bush administration that this nation was founded on Christian principles. Was it founded on Christian principles? It's absolutely not true, and the, the founding fathers would be, most of them would be quite horrified to uh, hear it stated as though it were a fact. In fact, there's no mention of God in the Constitution, and no. religion, religion is only mentioned for the purpose of ensuring its absence in God. That's government. right, that's right. The, the First Amendment and the Sixth Article of the Constitution, which are really to keep this country from having the terrible troubles that all the founding fathers have seen during the years preceding the Constitution in Europe, where there have been hundreds of years of terrible, terrible um, religious wars, really over over minor matters, and they were very eager that this kind of thing didn't happen in this country. And they and also they, and where where religion tended to fortify tyranny. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, Jefferson, who really hated and despised all priests and ministers, said, priests are always on the side of the tyrant. He said these, these words, he's always on the side of the tyrant always abetting tyranny, and they felt this way quite strongly. You know, one of the things that the Christian right points out is the fact that in God we trust is on our coins, and one nation under God was under the Pledge of Allegiance. Does that bolster their argument at all? Well, not at all. In God we trust was put on after the Civil War. It had nothing to do with the Founding Fathers or the Constitution. One nation under God was really invented and made up during the McCarthy era. One of the things that you do that's terrific about this book, a really important contribution, is to go through the principal founding fathers, uh, Washington, Franklin, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison, and um, and look at their religious beliefs and look at their beliefs about the impact of religion on government. And all of them were essentially deists. They That's were people right, yeah. who believed in a god, but they believed in very little else about religious doctrine. Um, they were broad-minded intellectuals. They tended to see religious zeal as irrational, uh, as a divisive passion that constituted a threat to, at least to democratic societies. What I'd love to do is kind of um, go through each of the founding fathers, because they're, they're, it's really kind of fascinating, the difference between them. The difference between them and, and us, and I think part of the interesting thing about writing this book was going back to those particular men and seeing why they were the way they were in the world they came out of, which is very different from our world. They were skeptical scientific thinkers who kept their minds open to everything, including um, religion, especially religion in, in a lot of cases. They were deeply spiritual men, almost all of them, but also skeptical about they had seen how religion itself, that the organized religions oftentimes erode the most fundamental assets of spiritual spirituality which is a, 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 the individual's relationship to the deity, to our higher power. That's right, and um, a connection, and a very strong connection with ethics. Somebody like Benjamin Franklin to revealed religion meant nothing unless it was connected with good works and doing something. But in fact, none of them had much good to say about re revealed religion. Jefferson said, the only revelation we're given by our maker is 
our reason. He himself, reading the Bible, he read the Revelation of St. John and said this is the ravings of a maniac. They all did have a spiritual center center, but it was it tended to be ethical and, and practical. I think George Washington, a lot of people considered to have been a Stoic, sort of a classical Stoic rather than a, a Christian. I made a point about not being demonstrative in any way about his religious beliefs, which people, there was strong pressure for him to be that way. First of all, he wouldn't take communion. He went to church. Of course, he went to church, but he didn't stay for communion. And when the priest uh, asked him, told him he was setting a bad example, he apologized and then no, didn't come to church at all on days that communion was served. He, no, he nowhere mentions the name of Jesus Christ in any of his letters and writings in 35 volumes of writings. But he actually purged mentions yes, of Jesus yes. Christ if, if, out if of his wrote, wrote about Jesus in his um, speeches, he would cut that out. And he also didn't talk about, in public, he didn't talk about God. He would talk about something like the great architect of the universe, which is a deist formulation. And it's also a, a way of being incredibly inclusive, I think. He was very eager that, that all Americans feel equally included, and he included... American Indians, Jews, everybody that you know he, that, that that came into the country, that came under the rubric of Americans. So he, he would he would formulate these very slightly religious statements to really be inclusive of every religion. Of all of the founding fathers, John Adams probably has a, the greatest claim to kind of a deeper, more developed religious belief or a traditional religious belief. He actually went to college to study theology, but he became entranced by political philosophy. And um, as he grew older, even as a young man, he began to question the tenets of his faith. He did. And as, as he got older, I mean, he, he was very reflective, very articulate, wrote about everything. Such, such a brilliant man. He reflected later on that he'd been brought up as a Calvinist and by the time he was middle-aged, he, he no longer believed, literally, any of the um, Calvinist dogma. But he did have a sense of human fallibility that was, that was um, the heritage of, of his Calvinist upbringing. There's a brilliant correspondence he had with Thomas Jefferson when they were both old. And they, were, they wrote very frankly about their feelings about religion and many other subjects. They no longer had a political career to, to tend to. In one letter to Jefferson, he writes something about having spent 50 or 60 years reading theology, passionately interested in every aspect of it. And after these 50 and 60 years of reading, his whole, he decided that his whole religion could be summed up in four short words, be just and good. He was skeptical, again, of organized religion. He was skeptical of organized religion. He became a Unitarian later in life, which basically means that he, in the deist fashion, believed in a God. They didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He saw him as a philosopher, as most of these guys did. I remember a revealing quote from your book, and I forget which of the founding fathers, if it was indeed one of them that said this, but that predicted within a generation that all Americans would be unitary. <laughs> that was Jefferson. He was, he was very optimistic. Uh, Adams wasn't that optimistic at all. Jefferson assumed that once everybody was educated, they'd know better than to be a, a, a zealous Christian, and they'd all become Unitarians and, and skeptical, open-minded deists, just like him. That didn't happen, and it didn't even happen. The reversion to a more fundamentalist religion even happened during his lifetime, which he was... And Adams were not pleased. It's so much about ethics. It really is. All, with, with all these guys, really. It's, it's fascinating. Um, and then Adams observed again and again that religious discord was possibly the most destructive of any other force yes. to the public peace. They all worried that unscrupulous demagogues could manipulate religious passions to their own nefarious ends or to self-interest. That's right. And it really started in, uh, in 1900 with the... Jefferson Adams presidential race, the Federalist Party, the supporters, or half-hearted supporters really of Adams, did their best to paint Jefferson as an atheist. 
But it, that didn't work at the time because people felt... Well, he revered Jesus Christ. Well, he but did. He revered and, him yeah. as a great philosopher and, and didn't necessarily believe in his deity. And he actually clipped the Bible and disposed of all of these sections where, uh, where there were miracles taking place. To That's retain right. just the philosophy short, of Jesus. A short document, a short New Testament called The Philosophy of Jesus. That's right. And uh, actually, you can buy that book at, at, at Barnes & Noble. I, I got a copy. It's published now, and it's, it's fascinating to see what he, what he kept in. Pat Robertson, uh, uh, old friend Pat Robertson, who's predicted, you know, who again, every time that anything bad happens to any city, a hurricane, Pat Robertson says it's because you've sinned and because you have too many gay people. And that's, mm-hmm. that's essentially 100% true. So uh, Pat Robertson, these are the breaking bulletins. He predicts a 2007 terror attack inside the United States. Oh, okay. Uh, he says that uh, there will be mass killing. Maybe millions of people uh, will be killed in this attack. Oh, really? Uh, and uh, it might be nuclear, but not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, he learned this because uh, God spoke to him. Uh, evangelical broadcaster Pat Robertson uh, Tuesday said, uh, told his uh, program, the 700 Club, that uh, God told him a terrorist attack on the U.S. would cause mass killing uh, in late 2007. He's very specific, after September. Mm-hmm. Sure, of course. Uh, again, he says it's not, not necessarily going to be nuclear. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe. Um. He said uh, very specifically, he goes, the Lord didn't say nuclear. (laughs) The Lord didn't use the word nuclear. Uh, But I do believe, Robertson says, that it will be something like that. Uh, This all happened during a recent uh, prayer retreat that he had, uh, is when the Lord spoke to him. Of course. Now, uh, God also said to him, again, God said these words to him, that major cities and possibly millions of people will be affected by the attack, which should take place sometime after September. So maybe not millions killed, but millions affected. Sure, of course. Uh, uh, he also, you know, back in January of 06, uh, he said that uh, God punished Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon with a stroke uh, for giving land to the Palestinians. Yeah, well, obviously. Sure. Uh, he predicted in January of 04 that President Bush would easily win re-election. 51%. Yeah. That's yeah. easy. Easy. Um, in 2005, uh, Robertson predicted Bush would have victory after victory in his second term. Mm. <laughs> Said Social Security reform proposals would be approved because it strikes me that that's the kind of thing that God would get involved in. Yeah, football games and Social Security reform. That's yeah, Social Security reform, yeah. Uh, this yeah. is one prediction he was not correct about. It hasn't been mass victory. Uh, yeah, and Bush would uh, nominate conservative judges to federal courts. Of course, he did get Roberts and Alito to the court. Uh, Social Security stalled. I like the idea that God would be involved in, in Social Security reform. Mm-hmm. And that it would be uh, that God thinks that privatizing Social Security is the way to go. Can, can you imagine that yeah. conversation with God? Oh, you think privatizing is the way to go, Lord? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. interesting. I didn't know. Interesting. I didn't know that. Okay. 
Yeah, like, all right. And then, why isn't anyone questioning whether or not Pat Robertson is certifiably insane? No, here's the, my real problem with it, and we're going to get to one of his uh, bad predictions in a second as well. Uh, uh, the people who listen to Pat Robertson, I'm not talking about all Christians, so everybody just calm down, okay? You, you just calm down. I'm just talking about the people who listen to Pat Robertson and believe him. Yeah, you're stupid. You're a stupid, stupid person. He's okay? a. He's a. Yeah, he's. Yeah, a, I mean, he's the a fact con- that he's a charlatan and a con man is so patently obvious. Really, Kotka had a conversation with you about whether it's going to be nuclear or not. I mean, the dude on his television shows. Ah, I say, I feel cancer out there. Oh, somebody got an earache. Oh, you are healed. And that an idiot watches that and goes, Yeah, I think he really was healed. I think Pat Roberts does any, telling the truth. Does any real Christian believe that God would talk to you about Social Security reform? And say, and uh, Pat, you must privatize Social Security. Come on, who's that painfully stupid? I didn't a realize lot of people... God was so in, in, into politics. I mean, yeah. He's like a wonkhead. Yeah, God thinks you should invest in U.S. cellular. Turns out God's a blogger. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's writing all these different opinions. Now, of course, yeah. Pat Robertson in 2006. Yeah, sometimes he's wrong. He says, I have a relatively good track record. Sometimes I miss. Uh, in May 2006, he said that God told him, again, God, uh, when he wasn't giving him uh, tips on Medicare. Backphone. Uh, said, you know, God said that the Medi- by God was in favor of the Medicare reform, and he uh. didn't think that the government should be able to uh, a bargain. Uh, to set a price with the pharmaceutical companies. No, God, God doesn't was, want you to negotiate. God was very strong that the government not be involved in that process. Uh, in May, uh, Robertson said that God told him that storms and possibly a tsunami were to crash into America's coastline in 2006. So a tsunami would hit America in 2006. Well, of course, the U.S. was not hit with a tsunami. Uh, Robertson on Tuesday said that last spring's heavy rains in New England fulfilled that prediction oh come on man yeah i mean we didn't even get a significant hurricane this year it was like out of the ordinary that we didn't even get a normal hurricane no God, I was just playing a joke on pat there but in october it rained really hard in boston so he nailed it and it drizzled in la last month <laughs> pat robertson genius money don't make i'm reaching out for the higher ground who has one of the most interesting resumes in American journalism. After attending Divinity School, he was a New York Times foreign correspondent for two decades, covering war zones in every corner of the world. His last book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. He joins us now to talk about his new book, American Fascist, The Christian Right and the War on America. Chris, on back of your book, you say that a, a professor at Harvard Divinity School told you that when you became his age, you said he, in, in, in this excerpt he was 80 years old, but he told you when you were in Harvard Divinity School that when you became his age that you would be fighting something called Christian fascism. Uh, have you found that to be? You're not his age. <laughs> you're, not yet. You're, you're half his age. But are, are you already seeing that start develop? Well, first of all, what is it, and do you believe that he was right? 
He was right. Um, you know, at the time he warned us as seminarians, it came, this was about 25 years ago, at the same moment that Pat Robertson and other radio and televangelists began speaking about this new uh, political religion uh, that would create a Christian nation and taken control of uh, denominations, of secular institutions, and eventually of the government itself. And we've watched since James Luther Adams' warning uh, over the past 25 years how this movement has uh, migrated from the fringes of American society to the very centers of power. Yeah, the term we hear all the time, of course, is dominionist, and, and that is that has become the equivalent of what he was trying to say about Christian fascist, I suppose. D- describe dominionist. A dominionist or Christian reconstructionist is someone who believes that they have been given a, a divine and moral right to create a Christian America, a Christian nation. Um, you know, and let me back up by when I use the term Christian, um, I look at these people as heretics. I come out of the church. My father was a Presbyterian minister. I graduated from Harvard Divinity School, uh, as you mentioned. And they have created, you know, through the huge distortion and corruption of the Christian religion and ideological belief system, uh, that is essentially about bigotry and hatred and intolerance. And that has been a mutation within the evangelical tradition or within fundamentalist cir- circles that is extremely important and very, very different from what we saw in the past. I mean, fundamentalists have always called on followers to remove themselves from the contaminants of secular society, uh, not to be involved in politics. Evangelicals, and we won't get into the differences between fundamentalists and evangelicals, uh, of which there are many, mm-hmm. um, but they have also, through traditional figures like Billy Graham, called on their followers to be very wary of political power. And Graham himself, of course, got burned by Richard Nixon and ever since spent time warning evangelicals uh, to stay out of the centers of power. There's a difference between, uh, you know, religion playing a part in political life and the political life of this nation, which it always has, and imposing a narrow particular religious ideology on the rest of us. That's a huge difference. I mean, my belief is that, you know, when, when as this movement garners more power, as I'm afraid it will, I think the, the fiercest opposition will probably come out of the evangelical movement itself. Uh, people who recognize these people for what they are and feel deeply betrayed. And I think we already see some of that in the Southern Baptist Convention, where the Dominionists, through Richard Land and others, took control of this denomination in 1980 uh, and really purged it, its ranks, uh, many of whom were sort of morally conservative. Uh, they, they opposed abortion. They thought homosexuality was a sin. But they had that, uh, one, those wonderful ties uh, to the working class, uh, to progressive politics, uh, which was also a real strain within American evangelicalism. Uh, and those people really, they couldn't, they couldn't even get parishes. I mean, I talked to one minister who finally uh, could only get a church in Canada. Uh, so these people are vicious on their own. Uh, and, you know, there are figures like Weldon Gaddy and others who can explain in more detail than I can. Well, I think one thing is very obvious. I mean, the dominionism, I mean, the bottom line is they want to politicize faith. I mean, dominionists, if you, what, they have at least six 
six national television networks now. Uh, they're reaching tens of millions of people, homes, uh, where, where the, the message is not about the gospel. I mean, there's nothing about Jesus Christ that led us to I mean, he rejected the Pharisees. He rejected the Zealots. That's why they crucified him. And so, but now you have, you have all that being turned on its head with Robertson and Falwell and Dobson types trying to say, no, it's our mission. It is what we we're supposed to do. Let me get back to, in, in your book, you talk about the fact that now what's happened is dominionism has actually been something that has some appeal to corporate America. <laughs> Explain that. I just thought it was so interesting. You talk about Tyson Foods and Walmart. Talk about that a little bit, how they embrace this new movement. Well, they embrace it because, you know, and, and for me the engine of the movement is the disenfranchisement of tens of millions of Americans uh, you know, this personal and economic despair that has gripped whole parts of the country. Uh, you know, the real world doesn't work for these people anymore. The federal government has walked out on them. Uh, they don't have any hope. They have embraced this theology of despair. That's what this is. Nothing in this world is worth saving. Uh, everything will be cleansed with apocalyptic violence. And um, they have embraced a non-reality-based belief system. They believe in magic. They believe that Jesus will intervene for them, has a personal plan for them. They believe in miracles. They believe in angels. And, of course, corporate America uh, loves it because who needs health insurance when Pat Robertson's going to cure you on a television screen? Um, who needs social welfare? Who needs uh, housing agencies? Who needs Head Start? Who needs good public schools when all you need is Jesus? Well, are you saying that Tyson Foods and Walmart and some of these corporations are actually financially backing the movement that they're promoting? The they are. They are backing it. I mean, they, not only that, but they've put these ideological commissars in, in their plants. I mean, they hire evangelical preachers to come in and spread this poison uh, uh, among their own poorly paid workers. Yeah, well, one, one thing I guess that they like about it is that, that, that you know, if and again, we're not talking about all fundamentalists. I mean, all evangelicals. We're talking about a, a, a small part of evangelicals, which I call fundamentalists, and we know who they are. I mean, they're, they're, they're like this Ted Haggard. They're just, you know, now we find out the guy is, you know, he's, he's preaching to 30 million people about how, uh, how we should live as Christians, and then we find out that he has this bizarre lifestyle that, uh, that you know, he, that he was trying to say is unacceptable. But the point is this. The, 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 I mean, that's what he, one, one word he'd say it's unacceptable. The other, the other word he would actually engage in it. But the point is, what has happened, if, as I look at it, is you have these these fundamentals who aren't willing to question authority, and that's something that Tyson Foods and Walmart has to really like. Well, you know, of course, and and corporatism is a fundamental component of fascism. I mean, you know, corporatism was very much part of Mussolini's sort of fascist state, and and many American industrialists flirted with corporatism. Fortune magazine put Mussolini on the cover in 1934, praising the Italian dictator for defanging labor unions and empowering industrialists at the expense of the workers. You know, there's always been, you know, Robert O. Paxton's great book, Anatomy of Fascism, writes about, unlike communism, that there is no such thing as a purely fascist movement. Fascists always make alliances, and often very uneasy alliances, with traditional conservative or corporate interests. And that's what we have, an uneasy alliance with corporate America, which, of course, cares only about profit, who see in these people who I think they probably 
sort of look at with a certain amount of disdain and and maybe even ridicule as able at the grassroots to promote an agenda. And, And what we've seen among the most successful preachers, and let's remember these people have become incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy, I mean hundreds of millions of dollars taken often from, from very from those living on the margins of America. Twenty dollar checks, yeah. Exactly. There's been an acculturation of the Christian gospel. They talk about acculturating America. What they have done is acculturated the Christian gospel to turn Jesus Christ into a robber bear. In response to the global challenge posed by religious extremism, a small group of impassioned atheists has taken a new approach. They target the tolerant with both reason and ridicule. The new atheists, as they were dubbed by Gary Wolf in a recent article in Wired magazine, condemn, quote, not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Religion is not only wrong, it's evil. This month, the New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof condemned the new atheists as obnoxious and militant and in your face. And he wrote that this, quote, charge of the atheist brigade in its treatment of conservative Christians is, quote, often just as intolerant and mean. Atheism already had a PR problem. Then came Sam Harris, author of Letter to a Christian Nation. When he wrote that since 20% of all recognized pregnancies end in miscarriage, God is, quote, the most prolific abortionist of all, he really made people mad. Harris is one of the most vocal spokesmen for the so-called new atheists, along with Oxford scientist Richard Dawkins, author of The God Delusion. They wield logic like a bludgeon, so much so that even Comedy Central's South Park, a series that has savaged Scientology, Christian fundamentalism, and the Mormons, got out the knives. Let us not forget the great Richard Dawkins, who finally freed the world of religion long ago. Dawkins knew that logic and reason were the way of the future. But it wasn't until he met his beautiful wife that he learned using logic and reason isn't enough. You have to be a dick to everyone who doesn't think like you. Sam Harris concedes he's on a mission to make moderates less moderate. Because moderates insist that we respect their religious faith, we can't criticize the role that religious faith is playing in dividing people. And Harris says moderates are mistaken if they believe the wall between church and state can protect us from extremists. They've already scaled it. If you think the creator of the universe is letting people fly planes into our buildings because we are tolerating gay marriage, or he's whipping up hurricanes in the Gulf because we're tolerating gay marriage, you have 
have to try to legislate against gay marriage, then if you think the creator of the universe is going to be scandalized by the mere depiction of Muhammad, you have to take to the streets and start rioting. There's nothing intolerant or mean or fundamentalist or dogmatic about opposing this kind of delusion. Real life differs from culture wars in the media. Gary Wolf wrote about the New Atheists in Wired magazine. He says that the blunt tactics used by the New Atheists cannot be applied to personal arguments over faith, where delicate family and work relationships might hang in the balance. He says the polemics of New Atheism can be just as nasty as the fundamentalists. So while I don't accuse the atheists of being fundamentalists, the rhetoric they use resonates with the religious rhetoric that controls much of our cultural debate today. Sam Harris. There's nothing fundamentalist about rejecting the claim that the universe is 6,000 years old. Yes, there is, says Christian Coalition founder Pat Robertson, speaking on the 700 Club. Uh, What we've got to recognize just there in this case is that the evolutionists worship atheism. I mean, that's their religion. So this is an establishment of religion contrary to the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. If, in fact, atheism were a religion, it might get more respect. That label evokes a strong negative response in American life. Penny Edgel is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Minnesota. In 2003, she and her colleagues, Doug Hartman and Joe Gratice, conducted a national poll to determine which of 10 ethnic and religious groups the average American would least like their children to marry. We had included atheists on the list as a group that we expected would have low levels of disapproval and therefore we thought, well, that will be a good yardstick against which to measure other kinds of attitudes. We were really very surprised. Atheists were deemed the least desirable. Muslims did better in 2003. And gays and lesbians, maybe because most respondents had at least seen one or two. But research suggests avowed atheists are few and far between. Just do the numbers, right? If there are only 7% of the American population, odds are most people don't know one. People fear what they don't know, and so they tend to be suspicious of the absence of a presence in the lives of atheists. It is religion, having a faith, that makes people in the American context seem trustworthy, like good citizens and good neighbors. So if you don't have that as a moral boundary, you're you're an outsider, an other, and perhaps a dangerous other. We're all familiar with phrases like, you know, I have to say it, Jews are cheap, Italians are in the mafia, blacks are on welfare, gays are promiscuous, and and atheists are immoral. Ellen Johnson is the president of American Atheists, but the phrase she hates most of all goes a little something like this. Perhaps you've heard the expression, there are no atheists in foxholes. Wartime, there are no atheists in foxholes. To amend the old saying about foxholes, there are no atheists driving trucks in Iraq. That was CBS's Katie Couric and Bob Schieffer and NPR's John Burnett. Those are just the three we got tape of. News people say it all the time. Ellen Johnson. It's demeaning to atheists. It's saying that under very dire circumstances or frightening situations, atheists will stop being atheists. They will start to be leaving. And this is really just a wish on the part of the religious because it's not based in fact. I thought it was a good line for the tape. NPR's John Burnett. And I didn't realize that it was so offensive to atheists. And I learned that in spades after the story came out. They spammed me for weeks 
with email saying we're outraged. So now I know. And did you sort of see their point? I do see their point. I literally hadn't thought about it before. And frankly, I will think twice about using the phrase again. So if the news media aren't sensitive to atheists, Hollywood must be, right? I mean, the political right says it's so gay and liberal and irreligious. Faith. That's another word for ignorance, isn't it? That's Dr. Gregory House, a brilliant if antisocial diagnostician and the main character in the Fox medical drama, House. He's also an atheist. In a recent episode, House comes up against a teenaged faith healer who seems to be curing a patient with terminal cancer. I fear for the human race. Teenager claims to be the voice of God and people with advanced degrees are listening. In a hospital staff lounge, a colleague posts a scoreboard with two columns, House versus God. Whenever House can't explain a medical result, says David Shore, creator of the series. God got a check mark. When House explains something, House got a check mark. At the end of the show, on that little tally board, you left it at a draw. Yes. But I think you were actually pulling your punches a little there, weren't you? I, I hope not. Um, maybe. I do it sometimes. I don't know. Yes, he does, because House actually found a medical explanation for everything the faith healer claimed to be doing through God. Hollywood usually pulls its punches on atheism. Mostly, TV atheists are lost souls, like Jen in the teenage drama Dawson's Creek that ran from 1998 to 2003. Here was Jen in the series premiere. You know, I don't, I don't do real well with the church and the Bible and, and his prayer stuff. I beg your pardon? I don't cover a religious God. I'm an atheist. And here she is in the series finale, terminally ill, taping a farewell message to her baby daughter. I've never really believed in God, but I hope that you are able to believe in God. Because the thing that I've come to realize, sweetheart, is that it just doesn't matter if God exists or not. The important thing it's for you to believe in something. There's very few openly atheistic people on television, and I find that a little surprising. House creator and writer David Shore. Atheists to me fall in the same category to some extent as lawyers, in the sense that people hate them in general, but like their own. They know House, they like House. They don't care he's an atheist. I don't think. You know, I get it. People are just looking for a way to fill the holes. But they want the holes. They want to live in the holes. And they go nuts when someone else pours dirt in their holes. Climb out of your holes, people! I like that one. I like that one a lot. But even Shore is inclined to believe there are no atheists in foxholes, or at least hospitals. To ignore issues of faith is to ignore a pretty fundamental part of all people's lives when they're in the hospital facing death. I'm not saying all people find God, but they certainly do ask those questions. What's an atheist to do? American atheist president Ellen Johnson says they have to organize. Until the atheists start voting their atheism and be identified as a voting block in America, the politicians aren't going to listen to us. We're not going to have any influence in the public schools. We're not going to have any influence in the media or anywhere else. But even she concedes that organizing atheists is like herding cats. Sam Harris says the only way to win is to keep up the pressure until religious tolerance is no longer tolerated. I think the criticism of irrationality just has to come from a hundred sides all at once in the entertainment community. I mean, you'll just have people making jokes that are funny enough and true enough so as to put religious certainty in a bad light. 
We know atheists are brave. Comedy Central's Stephen Colbert. They're not afraid to go to hell and be tortured by Satan for all eternity, which is what's going to happen. One day, someone in the White House press corps will hear the President of the United States express some certainty about being in dialogue with the creator of the universe, and he or she will ask a question which should be on everybody's mind. Uh, you know, How is this any different from thinking you're in dialogue with Zeus? That day is far off. But Harris has a great deal of faith in his fellow man. I'm hopeful that journalists and people in the entertainment industry are waiting for the permission to express their doubts. And I think that permission is coming. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to do what I can to engineer it in my hard-headed and boorish way. And I feel just from the contacts I have in both industries that there is a profound sense of relief that comes with hearing somebody call a spade a spade. Was that what Stephen Colbert was doing when he addressed an audience of Hollywood elite at the Emmys this year? Good evening, godless sodomites. <laughs> Harris may have no tolerance for the gospel, but as an atheist trying to enlist Hollywood in his crusade, Colbert's greeting has to sound like some kind of good news. Good as that guy named Jesus. 
Right now we're back with Chris Hedges talking about his latest book, American Fascist, The Christian Right and the War on America. Chris, my impression is this wave of Christian fascism is not on its way in, it's on its way out, but you think just the opposite. You think, no, we're just seeing the beginning of it. Yeah, because I think that what moves it, I think, it, you know, that... Uh, you know, for instance, you know, I covered the wars in Yugoslavia, and, and what is it that essentially caused the disintegration of Yugoslavia and the rise of the nationalist warlords like Slobodan Milosevic? It was the collapse of the Yugoslav economy. Uh, I think that when people are pushed uh, into the kind of despair that many Americans are pushed into, they reach out for movements like this. I mean, we live in a country where the top 1% control more wealth than the bottom 90% combined. That figure alone does not bode well for the health of a democracy. Uh, and until we re-enfranchise these people back into American society, I don't see how we're going to blunt this movement. Well, do you think at least there's been a recognition that they don't have to be Republican? Or I mean, I, you saw that last election cycle. I mean, you had Karl Rove that was counting on the, not just the evangelicals, but he was counting on those fundamentalists, that 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 just real narrow sect of of evangelicals to turn the tides. And I don't think they showed up. I think maybe the Mark Foley issue, the Abramov issue, the the dishonesty, the corruption. I think maybe it did keep them away from the polls. Well, it, it did, but also there's always there's been a long disquiet with George Bush, and we saw that when he was reelected. There were letters sent out by Bob Jones and others saying, "Look, we got the vote out for you. It's time you deliver. It's time abortion became murder. It's time you know homosexuals were completely stripped of their civil rights, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. You know, I think there is a, a growing feeling, and I've spent the last two years hanging around these people within the movement that George Bush has sold him out like every other mainstream Republican leader. Um, yes, he's given them a lot of money. Yes, he's, you know, uh, you know, chipped away at judicial appointments. Uh, but on the core issues, on the hot-button issues, that they sort of rally people around, marriage amendment acts, that kind of stuff, he's not delivered. And, and remember that, that on that whole immigration issue, uh, there's a huge uh, nativism uh, movement within the Christian right, you know, real racism towards immigrants. Uh, Bush sided with the corporations who wanted the immigrants to stay, who wanted the cheap labor. And that was a good example of that uneasy alliance between corporate America and, and this radical Christian movement coming to the surface, and it showed where Bush's loyalties lay to many in the movement. So it was a combination of many things, and one of them being is that for many in the movement, Bush just didn't deliver. He wasn't radical enough. I Listen to the wind, to the wind of my soul Where I'll end up, well I think only God really knows I've sat upon the setting sun But never, 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 never I never wanted water once
back to Tom Tancred. He says uh, in this, uh, as he's talking to the good people of Iowa, we have a cult of multiculturalism. This is what permeates our society. It's like a sickness, this multiculturalism. And he says, it's a cultural, political, linguistic tower of Babel. Now, other than the fact that it's a loathsome thing to say that I'm against all other cultures that aren't mine, which is what he's insinuating here, it's also totally misreads the Bible. So let's talk about that for a second. You see, in the Bible, the people work together to build a Tower of Babel, and it's a wonderful spectacle, and it reaches up nearly to the heavens, and they, and they built it together by cooperating, and they were all different kinds of people. They all cooperated. Now, what happens next? God comes in and says, how dare you petty little humans work together when I am God and I am the only one who could do anything great. So he knocks down the Tower of Babel and he takes all the people and he makes them, gives them different languages and spreads them throughout the world. Okay. So in the Tower of Babel, the people were working, multiculturalism was working until God screwed it up and gave them the different languages. So now... See why Tom Tancredo's thing is wrong in about 18 different ways. So is he mad at God for giving them all the different languages when he should have... You know, God could have settled this thing. He could have just given them English and we'd have been done. And he could have, instead of spreading them throughout the world, he could have put them all in America. I, it would have been done. I, I like using the Bible against Tom Tancredo, but in his uh, moderate defense in this case, he's not a big Bible thumper. Don't use the Tower of Babel if you don't know what you're talking about. Well, he's a fool, so I'm sure he's good. Yeah, all right. Well, I mean, I hear you. <laughs> okay. So... God created the uh, the problem with Babel by uh, spreading all these people out. Uh, and second of all, by the way, the Tower of Babel story is why I stopped believing in any religion. That was the camel that broke the straws. Nice. Nicely done. Yeah. See, apparently, you see God? Give me a little Babel there. Yes, right. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, God's striking back. That was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Uh, and especially since I was a Muslim at the time, it's no a point particularly would, good at analogy. No point would a straw break a camel's back. It just wouldn't. <laughs> I don't care how much weight was on the camel's back. <laughs> it's like the uh, moving half the distance to the goal line will never get you there. Uh-huh. Eventually you'll get there. You just will. I know technically what they're saying. Uh-huh. But eventually you're just simply going to get there. Because, you know, they're going to place the football a little close to it. Oh, look at that. Look at that. It's in. And they're going to be, no, it's half. on The mathematicians, don't email. I got it. Just, But eventually you're going to get there. Okay. Anyway, I was reading the story of Tower of Babel, and you don't understand, that's in the Bible, right? And what the reason that as a Muslim I was reading the Bible is because theoretically Muslims believe in the previous two books, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the Quran is the final word. So I'm reading through one of the books, the holy books, and I get to the what Tower of Babel. What if there's another word coming? That would surprise everybody, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be great because we'd have a lot more wars. Yeah, that'd be because, great. Because uh, you'd have all the people who believed in the new word and all the people who don't believe in the new word. And the, then you'd have a splinter group among the new word people, the ones that are like, no, you, we should have listened to Ali or John after the new word came in and the new word leader died. <laughs> Please. So uh, I, I read the Tower of Babel story and I think, why is God such a prick? And I know that'll get us, you know, actually nothing gets us in trouble. <laughs> I dare you. Go ahead. Get us in trouble. Okay. But anyway, um, but it's true. I think, well, they were working together and they built a nice tower and it was a nice accomplishment. And because you're so petty and childish that you can't have anybody compete with your big ego, you had to destroy the tower and make them all speak different languages and spread them throughout the world? I mean, what kind of a...
petty little jealous tyrant are you? And I decided right then and there, if that's God, and I don't believe it is, but if that's God, then I'm against that guy. And apparently, so is Tom friends. saving our souls from hell, then yeah, I guess we're being oppressed. Please welcome Chris Hedges. I'd like to get the side of that stage beveled, please. Um, Mr. Hedges, it's go time. You realize that, right? Okay. Your book is called American Fascists, The Christian Right and the War on America. Defend yourself, sir. In what way are the Christian Right American Fascists? I don't see our trains running on time. Well, that's because they don't run the country yet. Uh -huh. uh, I look at it as a mass movement. I mean, not, not as a traditional evangelical movement or fundamentalist movement, which always called on believers to remove themselves from the contaminants of secular society. This is something different. It's new. It's about creating a Christian nation, a Christian state. Why am I mean creating a Christian nation? This is a Christian nation. I mean, all the founding fathers were fundamentalist Christians. Uh, all the founding fathers were deists. Which, no, they were all fundamentalist Christians. Well, it depends no. which, if you're homeschooled, that's correct. Mm -hmm. all the founding I was. I was. So you admit I was correct. Well, that's, it's an alternative reality. Thank you very much. Join me. Join me. Right, it's I'm... lovely. The water's fine. Okay. So, okay. So, um, you know, but we are, we are ostensibly a Christian nation now, too. I mean, I get off for Christmas. I don't get off for Shavuos. Well, Christmas, wasn't Christmas given us to, by Macy's and Gimbel's and, I mean, Christmas... And God is, bless them. Good Christian men. You know, the, the, the commercial aspect of Christmas is a creation of American capitalism. It's mm -hmm, not but it's based upon a no, it's based Christian festival. No. Because yes, there's, no, we, there's, yes. no. There's you not, can say no, but I can say yes, well, and my but, word but has three letters. We don't, no, in, in the Bible, in the Bible, in fact, it never says when Jesus was born. But it said he was born. It says he was born. So we're just picking this day, and that's the oh, day, you well, know. We don't know when Washington was born. We just well, say President's Day. They picked the day of the winter solstice. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it sort of fit with a pagan religion and helped mm -hmm. bring in converts. Yeah, yeah, we made it our own. We changed we, we it into something good and that's Christian, right. right. Yeah. Are, you, are you a Christian yourself? Yes, I am. Okay, so that you must know in the Bible that we should should do what God says, and that's all the Christian right wants America to do. Uh, well, they pick and choose what they want. I mean, mm -hmm. there's much in the Bible that uh, they ignore, and there's much they make up. And uh, you Have know, you they... read the Bible? I went to seminary. Uh -huh. Graduated okay, seminary. okay. Who didn't? Okay. All right. I was an altar boy for all 11 right. years, okay? I went to seminary, okay? Right. Don't feel like you've got an upper hand just because you all know right. more. Right. Um, have, you, have, 
you read the Left Behind series? I have, I have. You have? Yeah, okay. and I've watched well, the films. Isn't that, isn't that clear, what we're supposed to be doing in there? That, that clearly says this should be a Christian nation. Well, it, Why don't you believe those? Because if I believe those, then I'm going to come to a pretty bad end pretty soon. I mean, it's... Well, whether you believe it or not, we're all going to come to a bad end. Well, no, not the, not the people, not everybody raptured into heaven without their clothes will be saved. And, mm -hmm. and the rest of us are going to be, suffer the torments of hell and be exterminated. I will put in a good word for you. Thank you. <laughs> um, what would be the harm if we became a Christian nation that obeyed the laws of God as these quote-unquote American fascists want? Well, I mean, I, I, you haven't made a case for the badness of it. Well, because what they've done is pervert, destroy, uh, and hollow out the actual heart of the Christian religion. I mean, look at the, the little empires that people like James Dobson or Pat Robertson run. They're, they're despotic third-world fiefdoms where these guys fly around with bodyguards and Learjets and have amassed hundreds of millions of dollars taken from well, people who I live on the margins of American success, society. Their success is evidence that they're blessed by well, God. And that, God wants you to be rich, sir. And that is exactly, <laughs> and, that, and, and it sells, I mean, to people in despair. And they run that cut line, you know, with the 800, with the 800 number for the love offering mm -hmm. and tell people to mail in their rent checks. And but let me just ask you something. They're all full of love, and you sound very angry. So yeah. who's the Christian here? Well, I don't think anger's a bad thing. You know, I mean, Augustine said uh, hope has two uh, children, uh, anger and courage. Anger at the way things are encouraged to make them uh, better. And, and I, I look at this movement as uh, a movement that is destroying a faith that I care deeply about. I mean, these people don't speak about compassion. They don't speak about the poor. Uh, they've turned, they've perverted the religion into uh, this gospel of prosperity where Jesus will make us all rich and powerful and blesses. Do you think Jesus drops. wants you to be poor? I mean, I think Jesus wants me to be rich. Well, th well then you're following the right movement because... Uh, uh, well, good. Well, then to each his own. You follow your Jesus and I'll follow mine. Well, but that that's, we'll see who wins. That's fine. Well, you know, I, Maybe we should have our Jesuses fight it out. I think so. I, I, you know, the, the, the image that they, that they present of Jesus and of the Christian is essentially a warrior cult. I mean, it's that obsession with violence. It is that notion that America can use its imperial power and use its violence to create a Christian society. They condemn other ways of being, other religion is satanic. I mean, they're constantly blasting Islam, uh, nominal Christians, liberals. The, it, it is a, a message that's well, deeply anti-Christian and, and I think filled with a lot of bigotry and a lot of intolerance. I hear you loud and clear. I understand what you're saying, and there's an easy way to settle this. I'll see you at the end of the world. Okay. All right. Mr. Hedges, thank you so much for stopping by. Balls, which I think is just funny enough that they're oh, called purity so, balls. So. And they're basically. I think for 25 years I had purity balls. <laughs> Unfortunately. Thank God for most women. Um, but uh, they're basically like. They're like pre weddings. Um, and the girls range from um, like 
10 to, I think, in their 20s. And it's a big event. You invite people. You invite people. You buy a huge dress. There's wedding cake. So it's it's, it's a, like a little mini wedding or sort of. The, say the ages again. I'm sorry. 10. I think they range from 10 until the early 20s. I mean, girls uh, that One of the girls that. I, I'm sorry, Jill. One of the girls that I read about was 25. Right, yeah. And there was a girl in the article that was 10, and they make the comment that most some of these girls that 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 take this pledge don't even have the capability to appropriately masturbate yet so so some the, i'm guessing then the, ran, the 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 somewhere most of the girls are are probably teenagers still in yeah. high school 13 14 yeah, 15 yeah, yeah. 16 in the, in that range it reminded and, me of a debutante ball all right so then and what are the who do they what, what is this they, they, they pledge they pledge their purity basically to their fathers it's it's so it's a ceremony between father and daughter yeah and they get rings and and everything it's like a marriage to your father while you are still unmarried, and then that marriage is dissolved when he gives you over to the man that you'll spend the rest of your life with. And basically, the the idea is that the only man in your life up until when you get married or courted by an appropriate suitor is, is your father. You know, there's a part of me that thinks it's semi-logical, and there's a part of me that thinks, boy, am I creeped out by this. It's incredibly creepy. It's strange. What's logical about no, like that your dad gives you away so that you're, you know, so you pledge your purity. Who would you pledge it to? I guess you'd pledge it to your dad until he gives you away at your wedding. I don't know why a debutante ball isn't necessarily creepy because it's sort of the same thing. I mean, your father's your date. You get into a big white gown and. Oh, your father's your date at the debutante ball? Yeah, but you're that. not, but you're not, but you're not pledging no, you're, anything you're, to him. He's basically at, at a debutante ball or a, is it a quinceanera? Um, Jesus, you're basically introducing your daughter to society. Oh, do you uh, Hispanic folks do the same creepy thing? Yeah. Where, no, no, no. Where the dad goes. There's, there's a sort oh, of no, like the dad doesn't go. That's big difference. There's just like a bigger deal for a sweet sixteen, but but sort of that same. You're introducing, you know, the young woman into society. Right. You're essentially no, he, but I think that's the exact uh, opposite. Right. Not making stuff up right. here, but, but that's where the creepy stuff ends. Uh, right. Like at sixteen, basically, Jesus, tell me where I'm wrong here. You're saying it's now okay to fuck. Right. No, they're saying you're a you're I mean, a woman so now. You have some, said yes, yeah. but, right. but in the article they talk about how you know there's this whole new movement basically, and it's it's being supported by the government. We talk about that. You know, you guys talk about that on the show all the time. There's so much money being put into abstinence programs now that, and they're trying to coin the the phrase um, chastity chic. Oh please! Yeah, you know, like it's it's cool to be chaste. It's cool to be a virgin. That's what all the cool kids are doing. And there's so much money now being put into the abstinence programs, and there's no money being put into obviously sex education, safe sex methods. And so these girls, and they, and they reiterate it in the story, and we've talked about this before. The girls that sort of pledge these abstinence things, and the girls that that are inundated with you know don't have sex before marriage, et cetera, et cetera, they actually have a higher rate of STDs. And it turns out, I think 88% the, was, the, um, was the number in the article, 88% of these girls that, that take these pledges still have sex before marriage. Yeah, look, because they're... They're human. People, right. And, and, and this is a, you know, I, I feel surprisingly strongly about this, and we've talked about it often, but if you inundate someone with... Don't have sex, virginity, 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 virginity. Like everybody else, when she gets to be fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, whenever it happens to come along, she gets a boyfriend, and they're they're at a party, and and she wants to have sex with mm-hmm. them because she's excited, and the human, the the, the bio, biology will take over. It's not just that they won't have the education that that hurts that they won't have the education, but I'm of the belief that most kids figure out 
how to work a condom and where to buy one anyway. Yeah, but I don't think a lot of people know really why it's necessary. That may be. And so I'll grant the education. But I think even bigger than the lack of education is the shame. So they won't have a condom because going to get a condom Mm -hmm. They have to interact with another person to get that condom. Whether it's borrowing from a friend, that's probably the most likely scenario, but their friends might be crazy virgins too. Right. So they, they're not going to the school nurse? Shame. They're not going to a drugstore? Shame. They're not talking to their parents? Shame. They're not talking to anybody? Shame. So they're going to have sex, mm-hmm. and, and nobody there is going to have a condom because shame, shame, shame. That's why they're getting pregnant. No, and, and then they're not going to. You go out and get in a weird, unsafe, illegal abortion, not illegal, but an unsafe abortion because you're not telling anybody. You're not going to tell your parents about that either. It's just, it is a slippery slope. It, the reason why it's illogical, of course, and I suspect you agree with this, Jank, is because kids ought to be having sex and they ought you know at, at whatever age they're ready 16 17 I mean, they shouldn't force it but i mean they should not realize that nobody should tell them what they should tell them is very simply don't have sex until you don't have sex mm-hmm. until you're 16 and don't have sex until you're ready if it's 18 19 that's awesome that's great but for the love of god always carry condoms with you at all times and that's and you're going to want to and it's going to be okay and you can be confused and you can See, come talk I to chalk me. it up to insecurity on the religion I, I mean if, if they if they were so confident that their values and belief beliefs resonate through their kids they wouldn't feel this need to push it through government they wouldn't feel the need to push it through school programs look you can teach your child that you don't want them to marriage that marriage is a sacrament and having sex is a is a very special thing that a husband and wife do together i mean teach that all the way but when it starts bleeding into my life when it starts bleeding into the education that my future kid might have that's when it becomes a problem and i really don't i i, I think this group of people is so painfully insecure about their god their own faith what 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 they hear every day at sunday church or mass or whatever it's called because they feel the need to push it on everyone else and and make it become part of the process for the country as a whole i think jill's entirely right i want to say a couple of quick things about that number one uh, the people who wait the longest in my experience are the girls who've gotten a, a really good education not just from school but from their parents and who understand sex education etc and are empowered to make the right decisions for them that are not insecure and that you know whether they're christian or not christian or jewish or not religious it doesn't matter the ones that their parents taught them hey be confident you know trust yourself and know that you're going to make the right call those are the ones that wind up waiting the longest in my experience i understand this makes sense i'm tempted to believe that that's you know as anecdotal as it is uh, i think jill's right and, and i think the evangelicals and the fundamentalists are de- scared to death that they're going to lose this cultural war well they are and, and they are going to lose this cultural war new york times had a, a funny article last week about how uh, a school in arkansas is finally uh, going to allow dancing i mean you saw footloose right that was in the 1980s to this day, right. this they, for the first time in 2007, they allowed a dance, okay? And then they didn't allow hip-hop or anything like that, God forbid. They allowed certain kinds of dances. But the reason that the very last vestiges of that old, old-school evangelical society is crumbling and can't last is because back in the day, there used to be these pockets of culture within the country that were all different. But now television has mowed it all down, and the Internet has mowed it all down with this giant tractor, right? So now there aren't going to be any places where you can't dance because that's crazy. I mean, that's asking too much of the kids. The overall culture has won, the overall secular culture. And so eventually 
they're going to have sex, and the secular culture is going to win. And your culture of keeping keeping them in a bubble is not going to win. Yeah. And that's why they're scared to death, and that's why they overreact. Well, I think you make a great point about why culture is going to win, and that there is no, you know, there we're all we, the shared experience in in rural Arkansas and Los Angeles and New York is much more similar than it's ever than it ever has been. But those kids were, of course, having sex in 1965 yeah. and 1945 too. They were just afraid to talk about it. But the but the elimination. Of, of of local culture, local pop culture, anyway, or whatever makes it, it certainly, uh, I certainly think happened. I, I think that, and I agree with with Jill too. But I, the knee, I mean, the notion that they would have these dances or these ceremonies, what are they called? Uh, purity balls. Purity balls. <laughs> they would have purity balls with it to not have like have purity balls to not do cocaine. Have purity balls not to drink and drive. Stop being afraid of your kids having sex. I, I would actually say that it is the only thing I would disagree with Jill on, and I understand every family certainly gets to make this choice themselves, and the most important thing is what Jill said, is that you not use your religion to sort of shove it down our throats and make ourselves live uh, the life that you would like to live. So if you don't want your kid to have sex until they get married, that's fine. But that's stupid, and you're wrong. There is, have, Of course they should have sex before they're married. It's crazy to wait until you're married to have sex. Ludicrous, stupid, foolish. You almost can't do anything dumber to your kid. I, I, you, can't, you can't give your kid worse advice than wait till you're 24, marry one guy, and don't have sex with anybody else. You are doomed to a life of unhappiness. Don't be afraid of sex. There's a really funny line in here. Leaders of the abstinence movement firmly believe, however, Ben, that teaching kids about the mechanics of sex and contraception arouses them and sparking them into having sex. They're aroused all the time. <laughs> uh, ben, how do you feel about this, though? Because I'm not getting a good Am I wrong? strong sense. Do you agree 100%? Of course you agree 100%. Sex is awesome, and you should wait until you're ready and not feel pressured, and then you should have a bunch of sex and be safe and be smart and don't have sex when you're ridiculously drunk and don't let some guy put a roofies in your Sprite. But for the love of God, have sex and stop telling them that there's something wrong when they have sex. And you know what one of these girls is in the story was saying about how she's not going to do, she's not even going to kiss. kiss. A, yeah, she's not even going to kiss a guy until she's married. Man, the chance you're playing Russian roulette with the guy you're picking because you don't know. I mean, you know how what old, I'm saying? How old was this girl? She was a teenager. Right. She's, she's she, going to change her mind. But no, she's going to get fucked so hard by the time <laughs> she's 18. Yeah, but see, but, but Jake's making a good point. That's true. You don't know what you're going to get in bed if you haven't tested out the ride first. It's not even uh, testing yeah. out the ride. I don't mean even sexually. I mean, if you're picking a guy simply based on the fact that he hasn't kissed anybody else either and yeah. he's willing to ha- marry you without kissing you, that means you haven't really effectively dated him, right? No, you, yeah, you got Because most functional people in America, they when they date, they kiss. So you haven't even dated the guy, so you don't know if he's compatible or not compatible with you. So you're like, you know, put some, a bullet in the gun and twirl it yeah. around and hope that it works out. I'm not talking about going out and having a good time and playing the field. I'm talking about actually having the importance of before you get married, before you're even 20, I think, before you, of having a shared intimate experience with other people. You're supposed to do that. That's what we're on this earth to do. It is the most natural thing in the world. And if you deprive your kid of that, you are you you are teaching your kid incorrectly. You are feeding your kid misinformation. You are you are stunting your child's growth. And I, you know, I, I get the ten to maybe fourteen year olds going through the purity balls. It makes sense because they haven't been exposed to anything. But the girls in their twenties or in their late teens, like yeah. this girl Marie, uh, Texan. 
she took the virginity pledge at 14 and actually felt no shame about breaking her vow a year later, only a year later. Oh. When I took the pledge, I was true to my heart. But as I got older, meanwhile, a year older. So she's 15. <laughs> I got older. I had, a broader, older. I had a broader world view. She, still, she stuck around to have sex with her boyfriend so her parents wouldn't find out and ended up getting pregnant at 19. And she married quickly thereafter. Yeah, good way to go. She, wait, wait, wait. And then she got divorced, and now she's retaking a, a purity pledge? No, no, no. She, oh. had, she had taken one when she was... So oh, she thinks it's sort of nonsense. I uh, See, I thought she was going back. She got, a broader, she got a broader view of the world when she got older. Yeah, when she was 14 and 8 11 months. 11 months yeah. later. Yeah. See, but that's the thing. I think these kids wind up having sex earlier. I mean, I just it's so counterproductive in 18 different ways. Uh, I, look, the whole idea, though, I mean, forget it. Whether you do it at a party or whether you tell them to do it in the privacy of your house, you are stunting your child's growth. You might as well, you might as well be giving them drugs. <laughs> well, Ben is uh, very passionate about this. I You're know. better off giving your kid uh, uh, t- t- uh, uh, three hits every Friday as you smoke weed together. Uh, seriously, I would rather you'd, you'd be a better parent. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Speaking of purity balls, I actually have a a, a personal story of mine that is, is actually very relevant to today's topic. And... It goes back uh, quite a few years, back to um, these guys I knew in high school, and one of one of these uh, friends of mine actually had a girlfriend who was um, was one of these pure until marriage types, and and I I, I, just, I think it's important to relate their story for for educational purposes um, because she made what I think was really the only. Um, sound, educated, uh, religiously integral decision that she really could have made, which was uh, to only allow anal sex with her boyfriend, uh, this guy who was a friend of mine. And as a side note, just to to add um, insult to what was assuredly at least minor injury, uh, they they chose to do it on a... um, on a third friend of mine's bed, which I think is fantastic because there, there's really no kind of bragging rights like the my friend and his girlfriend decided to have anal sex on my bed without my knowledge kind of bragging rights. That's that's something you can't buy or earn, really. It's just uh, It's just if you're lucky enough to have it fallen into your lap. So... But I think more importantly than, than just relating this story, it, it really gives me an opportunity to launch a new campaign that I want to tell you about that I think is very important to, for today's youth. Um, I, I'm planning on starting a new project, um, a, a sister website, if you will, in conjunction with Best of the Left uh, Productions. And... It's going to be geared entirely towards sexual education for teenagers. It's something that clearly kids are just flying blind. And, you know, maybe it's better now than it has been in the past. Um, Certainly uh, porn is helping out a lot. You know, they're they're not getting the education in schools, but 
They uh, access to pornography is, is at its highest level uh, in the history of the world, and 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 so that's definitely um, it's definitely a good thing for for today's youth to be introduced to um, you know anal sex and and uh, well every type of sodomy uh, especially and and it's it it can it's definitely used as a guide but mostly for technique and and what's left out is is the personal stories that can go along with that so so my goal is is really to create a resource for uh, for today's young girls to really help empower them to make the right decisions uh, ethically and and religiously to uh, remain saved and pure through the eyes of the Lord and and the name of my project um, will be saved through sodomy and it, it'll it, it'll just be a collection of stories of, of young girls with the strength to, to maintain their purity by allowing their boyfriends to sodomize them before marriage the way the Lord intended so think of it in, in terms of uh, my my goal would be to create a, a type of chicken soup for the sinful and uneducated sexual soul, and and really it's it's just a way for today's youth to understand that they have options and they don't have to have sex before marriage, no matter what the their des- desires are or what kind of pressures may be put on them. So I, I just want to ask you all now that if you'd like to contribute to the project, whether it be a personal story or, or someone you know of, um, just, you know, really um, great, passionate stories about uh, about today's young girls or, or, or youth of any kind with with really the, the, the strength and the courage to to give up anal sex in, in favor of... Uh, you know, in favor of maintaining their um, relationships w- without um, without having to deny their boyfriends really what they're after all along anyways. So, I mean, clearly, I think that education in this topic is, is the most important thing. And it's it's just something that's not out there enough. And, and so we we just need more ways, and I hope that this will be one, um, we just need more ways to to teach today's kids that it's important to be ignorant about sex, and um, you know, learning the mechanics or 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 the the safe methods of having actual sex is really just asking for trouble in the afterlife. It, it, it really is because the, the more kids know about sex, uh, the more they're going to do it. It it, it couldn't couldn't be simpler than that. So giving them an option to, uh, to go and kind of do their own thing and explore um, everything aside from vaginal sex, it gives them the opportunity to explore the, the pleasures without any of the sin in the eyes of the Lord. So I do hope that you will choose to contribute if, if you have anything to contribute, please uh, send your stories. You can just go ahead and send it to, to the best of the left. The, 
the new website isn't set up yet, but um, I'm, I'm really hoping this will take off and, uh, and we'll get this project started together. Um, so certainly if you have any, uh, any saved through sodomy stories, you can just send them in at bestofleftpodcast.com or directly my email is hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. By the way, uh, the, the end of my personal story is that when the girl's parents found out that my friend was having anal sex with her, they uh, reportedly prayed to God for his death. Good people. Good people. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the border of Washington, D.C., Best of the Left Podcast at bestoftheleftpodcast.com, and I'll talk to you real soon. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Bitches ain't shit but hoes and tricks. Lick on these nuts and suck the dick. Let's get the fuck out after you're done. And I hops in my ride to make a quick run. I used to know a bitch named Eric Wright. We used to roll around and fuck the hoes at night. Tighter than a motherfucking gangster beats. And we was ballin' on the motherfucking Compton streets. Peep that shit got deep and it was on. Number one song after number one song. Long as my motherfucking pockets was fat, I didn't give a fuck where the bitch was at. But she was hanging with the white bitch, doing the shit she do, sucking on a stick just to get a buck or two. In the end, she got meant nothing, and now she's suing because the shit she be doing ain't shit. She's hanging with the streets. She found herself short. Now she's taking me to court. It's real conversation for your ass. I once had a bitch named Mandy May I used to be up in them guts like every day The pussy was the bomb, had a nigga on spun I was in love like a motherfucker licking the proton The homies used to tell me that she wasn't no good But I'm the maniac in blackness, the Snoopy's word So I figured niggas wouldn't trip with mine Guess what got gaffled by one time I'm back in the motherfucking county jail Six months on my chest, now it's time to bail I gets released on a hot sunny day My nigga D.O.C. and my homie Dr. Dre Scooped in a coupe, Snoop, we got the news Your girl was tricky while you was drinking the county blues Ain't been out a second, no ready I got to do some motherfucking chin checking up the block as we creep down the block See my girl's house, Dre, past the clock Kick in the dough and I look on the floor It's my little cousin Daz and he's fucking my hoe I uncocked my shit I'm heartbroken But I'm still looked Man, fuck that bitch Three, four Bitches ain't shit but hoes and tricks Lick on these nuts and suck a dick Kiss the fuck out in my ride to make a quick run I used to know a bitch named Eric Fright We used to roll around and fuck the hoes at night Tired of them motherfucking gangster beats And we was born on the motherfucking Compton streets Beat that shit got deep and it was all Number one song after number one song Long as my motherfucking pockets was fat I didn't give a fuck where the bitch was at But she was hanging with the white bitch Doing the shit she do Sucking on his dick just to get a buck or two In the end so she got mad nothing And now she's suing cause the shit she be doing ain't shit She's getting in the streets She found herself short Now she's taking me to court 
some real conversation for you.